Hi, this is Rafe Palmer with Rahul Iyer. We're attorneys at STG Divorce Law, introducing the I Just Want This Done podcast. I'm Rafe Palmer. I'm the principal of STG Divorce Law. I've been a divorce lawyer for over 20 years. I'm the author of the best-selling divorce book, I Just Want This Done, How Smart, Successful People Get Divorced Without Losing Their Kids, Money, and Minds, available on Amazon. And with me is Rahul Iyer, one of my partners at STG Divorce Law. How are you, Rahul? I'm doing well, Rafe. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So, Rahul, uh, so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? I'm an attorney. Thanks, Rafe. I'm an attorney, obviously, uh, as you mentioned earlier, partner at STG Divorce Law. I'm also formerly had my own practice for many, many years prior to joining STG. Very happy to be part of the team here. And uh, background in finance and business, uh, my undergrad, and uh, sort of very interested in this intersection of law, politics, business, etc. So, uh, technology. Very happy to be here and uh, looking forward to it. So where are you from originally? I'm actually uh, a Canadian oh. and uh, <laughs> originally from a suburb of Toronto, Canada. So uh, lost Shout the accent out. over the years though. Yeah. Shout out to the Canadians. Hello. So uh, yes, well, uh, welcome. No, we're, we're glad to have you. So you went to school in the U.S. in Minnesota, right? Right. So I did my undergrad in at Arizona State University. Yeah. So I went from one of the coldest places in the world in Canada to <laughs> one of the hottest places in Arizona and decided to go back to even more cold in Minnesota. So kind of bouncing around all over the place. I just can't seem to figure out what weather pattern I like. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, in any of Chicago where you've had a very hot summer and you get a very cold winter, you got the middle. They got the best so, of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Today, we're, we're starting a new podcast, and we want to talk about things that interest us because we think these things will interest you. And that has to do with things like business, finance, travel, uh, you know, luxury goods, uh, all kinds of things. And we're going to be talking about divorce, but fun stuff about divorce, interesting things about divorce, like talking about celebrity divorces, sometimes what we can learn from celebrities about their divorces to make your life better. So with that said, and then really in what else, or whatever else we think is interesting or you might be interested in. So with that said, uh, we wanted to talk today about the Kevin Costner divorce and how that ties into divorce in general and things we've learned in our practices handling divorces for folks in the Chicagoland area. So without any further ado, I want to talk about some of the things going on in Kevin Costner's divorce. And he's famously or literally lately involved in a contentious divorce with his soon-to-be ex-wife. Rahul, can you tell us a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about the present situation in that case. Sure. So the biggest thing that's been in the news has been her, Ms. Bumgartner, not leaving the house. She doesn't want to vacate. She says, I want to stay here. Obviously, we all famously know, we've seen it on TMZ, we've seen it on page six. They have a prenup and he's demanding she vacate. So right. the question for the court is, what should she do? And, and the prenup, the prenup says she's supposed to leave in thirty days. And uh, so, you know, uh, she's supposed to move out of the house in thirty days. The house, by the way, is like a hundred and some million dollar estate, and he's got another place in Telluride or something. Another, I, another very expensive ranch somewhere out west. So, the interesting thing is. Uh, we see, we get people all the time and I see them in my social media saying prenups don't work. So what, you know, what do you think about the prenup in this case? And let's talk a little bit about 
what's involved in this prenup and what we know about it publicly. Sure. And, and famously, people love to make statements because it's, it's very catchy. Prenups don't work. It's, they may base it on something they might have, you know, Rafe, they might have heard some neighbor must have told them, hey, I got taken for a ride. But facts being, you know this better than anybody, they're the hardest to overturn. I mean, it is extremely hard to overturn a prenup regardless of jurisdiction. And the one that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the one people will say in this case, they're saying, well, see, she's challenging the prenup. And the point is, anybody can challenge the prenup. The question is, will they be successful in challenging the prenup? And that's something I've said for years before I did divorce. When somebody be shocked that a lawsuit was filed, let's say there's something in the media where somebody sues over something that sounds silly. And they would say, well, I can't believe they can get away with it. Well, say, well, you can file the lawsuit. Can you win the lawsuit? You know, will you prove it? That's the question. And so, yeah, you can challenge the prenup. And, and that's done. It can be often done as a tactic to gain some bargaining power, some leverage. But it's not often successful, as you said. And more often than not, it's not. It, more often than not, it is not successful. And it reminds me of a story when uh, I went to a conference of divorce lawyers in Miami several years ago. And I was sitting in a huge conference room with I'd say high net worth, high income divorce lawyers from all over the country. And the main complaint was that they had trouble challenging prenups and they wanted the prenup to be judged at the present time for fairness, meaning when the divorce was filed, not when the prenup was signed. So, uh, which of course make them much easier to overturn. And that was their big complaint was that the premarital agreement act, which has been accepted in, I think all 50 States made them basically bulletproof except for a few exceptions, you know. So do you want to talk about a couple of the the concerns about a prenup or where they might be weak, you know, where, where folks might want to watch out in a prenup? Yeah, absolutely. One, one big thing, one big red flag that immediately comes to mind is, can you agree or can you sign a prenup when you don't know what the other person has? So disclosure, biggest elephant in the room. I can't agree to waiving what you have or any future rights or whatever other deal you and I may make, you or I might make if I don't know what you have. So yeah. disclosure is a big, big thing that yeah. can stop a prenup from being enforced that a court can sort of stink, sink its teeth into. Courts typically can only do what the law gives them power to do. So they're often looking for ways to either get out of a situation or something to latch onto to say, this is what I'm going to use. So if you don't disclose, or if you don't have an adequate or a fair disclosure or reasonable disclosure of assets and liabilities, that's your biggest or one of the biggest points you can use to say, this prenup's no good. Yeah, and that's, that's where I always tell potential clients who talk to us, I say, you know, uh, your uncle Bob, who's a lawyer, you know, real estate lawyer will say, well, I'll do a prenup for you for 500 bucks. But the, uh, yeah, the piece of paper isn't the point. It's you can get one from, you know, one of these websites for some of them. You get ChatGPT to probably write one for you that is very basic. But I don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> but but you can get something online that would at least maybe do the basic job of saying that your premarital property is yours and the other person's is theirs. By the way, I had a client hire us recently to fix a prenup from one of those online services that was garbage. And one of the things they don't tell you is the disclosures and, and they and that exact issue is the problem. Full disclosure of the finances and documenting the disclosure is really important, like you're mentioning. And, you know, 
so that's a big issue. And, and that's something we always talk to our clients about is make sure you fully disclose income expenses, especially income assets and liabilities, like you said, so that people are upfront about what they're trading away and or what they're what they're protecting from the other person. And they can't say later, well, I didn't know I was signing away X million dollars. So what else, what else is a typical concern in a prenup, like a big, big ticket item that makes these things, you know, one of the kryptonites, you know, one of the weak spots. Another big um, kryptonite or a weak spot is, or possible would be timing. Did someone have a gun to your head? Right. Or a figurative metaphorical gun to your head yep. the day before your marriage saying, sign this or we're not getting married. You have right. tons of family planning to come to come visit you. You have all your wedding venues. You have all the caterers. You got all, every, all the invites are out. You're about to get married. And now if you don't sign this, everything is gone. You are, you'll be ridiculed. You'll feel like it. You'll be shamed. And so timing is very important. There's no hard set fast rule about when or how far apart you should sign, but eve of a wedding, That's probably not a good idea. I guess just to clarify, it's really like undue duress because yes. what, you know, prenups that are signed a few days before the marriage might be entirely legit and, and might be bulletproof. The, the whole thing has to do with the, the timings, one element. Yeah. You know, but an undue duress is the thing. Was the person under some undue pressure? And it has to be serious and not more than just we'll call off the wedding if you don't sign it's got to be something serious and something that, like you said, judges are rule followers and they need something to hang their hats on to get excited. If you're going to prove undue duress, it has to be something serious. And so one of the reasons we advise people talk to us as soon as possible and, and as early as possible is to avoid the undue duress argument that you're pointing out and the, and the thing you're talking about, which is not, you don't want the added burden of having to get waste a bunch of money on the, on the venue if things don't work out, if you don't work out an agreement, uh, you don't want to blow up the wedding two months ahead when everybody's bought non-refundable airline tickets to a destination wedding. So the sooner you can work it out, the better. I'm glad you clarified. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Because you could be negotiating a prenup for six months, eight months, and sign it the day before. Totally okay, like you said. Possibly bulletproof. You don't want to spring it on someone the day before. Right, right. Yeah, that's and absolutely not <laughs> time to do it. And we've actually turned down clients who have come in five, six, seven days before a wedding and said, you know, will you write up even a week or two before? And they said, will you do a prenup for me? We can't do a good job in that amount of time. We're not going to take the risk and give somebody a, a document that we can't stand behind. So it's, I would be suspicious of a lawyer who would say, oh, sure, I'll whip it up for you a couple days before the wedding. I mean, it's, you're taking a big risk. So, but let's, let's talk. We kind of got a little bit into the weeds on prenups, but it's useful as a backdrop for the Costner case. And the Costner case is interesting, not just because he's Kevin Costner, but it points up so many sort of interesting bits and pieces of divorce cases and how these things shake out and work out. And then how people make assumptions about things they don't know about, like what I'm reading about in the press about this case, acting like Carrie is her first name, she's winning when that might not be how it shakes out in the long run. So let's talk, I'm looking at our doc, you know, uh, we've got 
she's already she's got to vacate the residence soon. That and that is showing that the judge is putting some credence in the prenup, right? Because what what happens in a normal divorce? Let's talk about what we know in our Chicagoland divorce practice. Can some you know can somebody kick someone out of a house during a divorce case? Yeah, no. absolutely, and it happens very frequently. There are a lot of different reasons without getting too much into the weeds. You absolutely can request that one party move out or vacate the residence. It's called right, having but exclusive it's, possession. But it's not easy to get, right? It's not at all easy to get. You have to yeah. have certain statutory factors that you have to meet, of course. Right, and it's it's basically things like extreme violence, uh, you know, abuse, that kind of thing in the home, yes. right? So I guess I'm talking about, in, in the generic sense, you know, it, it's been our experience, you know, working in, in these cases that if you just want somebody to move out, good luck. The court's not going to do that till the end of the case. I'm talking about everybody's getting along fine, no problems, and you're trying you bring a motion to try to get the person to move out. The chances of you doing that are slim and none, or forcing a sale of the home, for example. Right. And and so that you know, I'm just trying to compare it with this situation where this would normally never happen in a typical divorce case if there wasn't this prenup. This is showing the judge is putting some credence in this prenup saying, sorry, miss, you, you know, ma'am, you have to leave. Normally, she'd be able to sit there through the whole case if, if he didn't have a prenup like this. Oh, absolutely. And it, to highlight this specific, um, beyond the background, this specific instance, absolutely. The court is cognizant of the prenup, specifically cognizant of the provision requiring her to vacate the residence. And now she has sort of hunkered down saying, I'm not leaving until I get money. Right. So, well, yeah. And his, and his attorney had to bring a motion to get her to leave. And then also they just filed a motion, I think last week to insist that the, the personal property, the movable stuff stay in the place. Cause she said, she's taking stuff with her out of the house. <laughs> and I'm guessing this stuff is not insignificant in terms of value. I'm guessing we're not talking about bargain basement stuff sitting around this multi you know, hundred plus million dollar estate. So I just found it interesting that, you know, and he, he's got a very skilled attorney working for him. I'm sure their counsel are sharp on both sides. There isn't any bargain, a discount lawyer working on this case. And they're, they're both taking aggressive stances in this case. And uh, so you're seeing a lot of litigation here. And let's talk about um, one thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know if people know or watching this, Costner sort of had a, his divorce was very publicized. His first divorce, he had children with his first wife, divorced in the late nineties, if I recall correctly. And he gave his wife $80 million. Now that means his estate was probably worth over $160 million or somewhere around then. Cause she got half of the estate more than likely. I don't know the details, but I do know from press reports, she got 80 million. So you can rest assured that Costner got excellent counsel to draft this prenup because he wasn't going to have this happen again. So can you explain some of the kind of interesting provisions in this prenup that sort of address this issue that he didn't want to be subject to like an open book or an open checkbook, right? So one very interesting provision uh, is this built in what we call a uh, poison pill from the business world, right? So essentially what it says is this prenup is bulletproof. And if you'd want to challenge this, Christine, you are going to have to pay all the attorney's fees after you lose the inevitable challenge. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting the way they've structured this because yeah. 
this is the deal and don't come after me. The future is what he said, learning from his prior divorce. And, and that should give an attorney pause. You know, lawyers challenge these things frequently and you don't often see the poison pill provisions in the prenups. So there's sort of no pain in challenging it other than you might spend some, you know, a bunch of money during the divorce case or some money that fees that gets wasted in the process. But in this case, there's a real, there's two interesting aspects to this. One is the fee shifting provision that awards fees to Costner if he wins the challenge. The other thing that's wild is there's a fixed payment to Christine in here for Kevin Costner's wife for 1.4 million. It's baked into the deal that instead of alimony and instead of a property division, she gets 1.4 million straight up. In fact, I read in one of the press reports, he parked 1.4 million in a trust account. And it's worth like one and a half now, probably because of interest. I don't know if he was required to do that then, but he has banked the money and set it aside for this, ready, willing, and able to give it to her, I'm sure. And uh, so she might forfeit the 1.4 million also. So it's a double whammy. Not only are you paying fees, but you're giving up $1.4 million. So there's a real dice roll here, big chances being taken by her counsel. Maybe they're, maybe they're super confident. Maybe there's something they know that we don't know. I'm assuming the disclosures were excellent. Again, I'm, I'm assuming Mr. Costner spent good money on a lawyer and buttoned it up. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing he didn't get the, the quickie online document. So my guess is it's nailed down and he's got a good shot at this. So there's a, this is very interesting. And uh, they're playing a kind of dangerous game. Which, what, what's kind of interesting is tying this into the child support. And I'd like uh, to talk about that a little bit because people are freaking out over the child support numbers that are being thrown around here in the court's temporary child support order. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's really interesting. And it also helps us kind of understand in our context, you know, in Illinois, we have statutory guideline support and then we can, courts can deviate from that and go above it. Let's talk a little bit about that if you could. Thing I think universally you can't contract for is child support. So you can't really say in a prenup, I'm going to pay you X dollars in child support because it's against public policy. You might not know how many kids you're going to have, what kind of needs they may have, so on and right. so forth. So can't do it. So and you can't do you can't do custody and visitation in a prenup. No kid related stuff, right? Exactly. So no yeah. kid related stuff in a prenup. No, uh, no contracting for that. So one way people can try and get some more than they've bargained for is is child support. So in this case, Christine, through her lawyers, I think they're asking for like a quarter million dollars a month, $248,000, $250,000 a month in child support. An obscene number. Again, we're Chicagoland attorneys. We might not know exactly how California child support structure or system is set up, but right. it's, it's hard-pressed to sort of see why someone needs – $250,000 a month in child support. What do you think, Ray? So let's talk a little bit about that because it's interesting. And I've done a lot of high net worth, high income, and you've done quite a few of them too. So it sounds like an astronomical number and, and I get it. And let's talk first about, you know, she's requested 249 a month or whatever in her petition. He offered, I think he suggested the court should be 50 something. And the court landed at, I think, 129 a month in temporary child support. So first we want to say 
This is a temporary order, what we call an interim order. The court orders these kinds of things because divorce cases can take a year, two, three. In Cook County, Illinois, Chicago, you can spend three plus years in a divorce case and somebody needs to get financial support in the meantime. So the court orders these temporary amounts and they can be, they're subject to change. So the court always says these orders are temporary, they're, they're not permanent and they're modifiable. So the court is saying, well, I'm going to effectively split the difference. I'm not going to agree with Mr. Costner at 50 grand. I'm not going to agree with uh, Mrs. at 250, 249, went to 129. Now, the court has available financial information from the parties, right, when they make these decisions. In our state, we have these financial affidavits that are filled out by the parties. They have the income expenses, assets and liabilities, and the court's also looking at the prenup as well, I'm sure, and, and making a determination what are legit expenses? What does this person need to live temporarily? You know, now that she's cut off from Mr. Costner's assets and, and his income. So that sounds like a giant number to us. And it is, it's a giant number no matter what. But you have to understand when you're talking about these lifestyles, these people lead to live in a home anywhere near Mr. Costner is going to be extremely expensive. We're talking about California real estate where a very small home is over a million dollars. I mean, I've, you know, you can look up the prices. They're crazy to folks in the Midwest, but these homes are incredibly expensive and, and in those neighborhoods even more so. So to facilitate the children's lives, so they're seeing their parents frequently, it's going to be expensive to rent anywhere near, a, you know, a place probably anywhere near Mr. Costner's home. So that's one thing. Then maintaining the kids' lifestyles is not just bare necessities, but it's going to include, you know, so there's a place for mom and the children to live, clothing, shelter, activities, things of that nature. And the court did order that one thing that uh, Christine wanted is for Costner to bear all those costs, all the expenses of activities, schooling, camps, all that stuff. And the court said that's 50-50. So she's going to have to come up out of that temporary support money. She's going to have to spend her money on half of those expenses, summer camp, things like that. So what's interesting is you're seeing some balance come in here with the court's temporary rulings. But um, so, you know, with it makes us just realize how this is. And it's in our state we have. Can you explain the guideline system in Illinois? And we don't know what the system is in California, but we can speculate there's a formula probably probably should have searched this ahead of time, but I'm guessing there's some kind of proportion or formula based on the payor's income or maybe both the, the payor and the recipient's income. So what, tell us about the system in Illinois briefly for comparison and then also why would somebody would deviate from that system. Absolutely. So Illinois follows something called an income shares model. So the income shares model, is, it's a very interesting concept. It was recently employed by the state legislature. Prior to that, it was a straight percentage. Yep. It'd be very easy to figure out. Take your tax-free income. You have one kid, you pay 20%, two kids, 28, three kids, 30, 33, so on and so forth. Now, right. it's a little bit more nuanced. So what income shares refers to is what share of income that you earn uh, proportionate to what the child's needs are. So the state of Illinois puts out these so-called charts or tables that show what your household income would be if you stayed together. 
And so depending on if you had one child, two children, three children, etc., it'll say this is how much support as a combined family you would have paid for this child. Right. Therefore, now that you're separated, you both have an obligation, you both referring to both parents have an obligation to contribute, but essentially the parent with less parenting time will pay to the parent with more parenting time this right. dollar amount. And the parent will not pay themselves, of course. So that depends a lot on the amount of parenting time you have, as well as what percentage or proportion of income you are to the other parent. Yeah, and that was summer 2017. We had that change, and it was a major change from the old system. The numbers used to be quite a bit higher. And you know, because it was a raw percentage of net income, typically that was a big ticket item. And now it's, like you said, much more nuanced based on both incomes. And there's also a step down if the person has more than 146 overnights, which is like 40% of parenting time, there's a big reduction in support. The theory being both people are paying the freight to house the kids. So there should be a big reduction in support. And you can, the court can deviate above or below the guidelines, depending on the circumstances. In a case like this with somebody with a very high net worth, super high income, very expensive lifestyle, the court, the court may well think, hey, we should deviate above you know, the statutory support amount, the, the state guideline amount to help pay for the expenses for the children. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, they, they say one of the things to keep in mind is child support is supposed to be for food, clothing, shelter, the basic necessities of life, not the fact that it's a theoretically a fancy mansion or, I mean, one of the complaints of high net worth folks or lawyers that represent the higher income people, high net worth people is, that the formula system doesn't account for people that have much higher expenses. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's like anything. It, it's an approximation or a system that accommodates and probably does a decent job for the vast majority of people. And then in the outliers on the bell curve are the ones where the system doesn't work so well. That's the, the, at the sort of low end of the income scale and the very high end, the numbers get a little messed up. Right. You have your 90210 zip code and you have your weekly Erewhon grocery shopping list, right, where you're spending all kinds of money buying regular, you know, $20 gallon of milk sort of lifestyle. And is yeah. it really catered towards that? That's the question. Yeah. And so one thing that's real interesting is you can see like in the angle for her attorneys is, well, the prenup doesn't nail down child support. Let's squeeze as much money as we can out of the child support. I don't fault her or them for trying, but it's, uh, and that there's no, there's no downside in asking. That's for sure. That's one thing I've, you know, uh, if you're legally entitled to do it, there's no downside in asking for it. You might not get it. And, you know, so far they haven't, they've gotten 120 something a month, not 250. But I think their theory was, well, let's aim high and see what happens. And, and so far, They've got her a decent chunk of change coming every month from Mr. Costner. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, the court of public opinion, brand reputation, things like that in this case that maybe the everyday folks like you and me don't necessarily need to worry about as much. Uh, we're not public figures, but considerations for somebody like Costner, uh, somebody who's a business person who has a high profile or a political figure, something like that, and how they handle the media and dealing with this stuff publicly. Absolutely. So the name of the game in something like this is, is discretion. So 
as attorneys, we strive to be as discreet as possible, especially when you're dealing with a public figure or some, you know, titan of business or politics. And so they don't want their drama played out in the press. And in, in a situation like this, where one person seemingly has everything to lose and the other person seemingly has everything to gain, the, uh, one person might want it to be played out in the press because just to get the other side to stop, they might give them a little bit more and say, stop, go away. So right. these are little angles people might try and do that's not necessarily governed by something, again, like you talked about the prenup. It's yep. can we vilify one person against uh, the media and that may then affect their reputation, their identity, if they're getting brand deals or depending on what profession they're in, is it going to affect them getting additional like Costner will it affect him getting deals or movies well yeah that's absolutely right and just uh, one thing we were talking about today where this plays in we we normally advise our clients to go dark on social media and not badmouth their spouse and all that for a number of good reasons one you know when your kids seeing that stuff number two it really ends up not being a good look for you even if you think you're the victim that stuff tends to blow back on people uh three if you're going to reconcile and reconciliations happen, I just had a client reconcile with his wife after many months of an ongoing divorce case. You don't want to have all that bad stuff out there. Now your friends and family think ill of your spouse and you're still married to them and you're going to see him at Christmas or you're going to see him at a birthday party. And what are you going to do now? Now you've dumped all your dirty laundry out there on social, or maybe you told your family all this stuff and it, it's going to be very uncomfortable and difficult. So number of reasons why, and it tends to be a spiral that, that devolves and is, doesn't turn out well. And so we advise people to keep it quiet. And you're right, people use that stuff tactically. And with a famous person or somebody's high profile, they might use dirtying them up as a tactic, like we saw in the Amber Heard case, where she went no holds barred against Johnny, I think figuring Johnny was going to knuckle under and, you know, give in. And he went all the way to the wall with his attorneys. And look what happened in that case. It's very interesting. So now libel is different. Those are tough cases to prove typically. And but that was rough. That was all out in the public. And it, I think it hurt, it hurt both of them. I think Johnny, you know, probably public perception, Johnny probably came out on top. But I think it damaged both of them along the way. And so it certainly can be used as a weapon, but boy, you have to be careful. It's like they say about a knife fight. I've heard this somewhere. They say, you know, the problem with the knife fight is everybody gets cut. And that's, <laughs> that's what happens with this stuff. And it's, so we, we advise people to stay quiet about it because it's hard to put the bullet back in the gun once you start doing that stuff. And it's not a good look. Um, and uh, optics matter. Even in the small, we don't have to, even if we're not famous, I talk about this in, in my book, there's what I call the meta case before Zuckerberg stole the term, but meta meaning the case bigger is bigger than the facts and the law. The case, as you and I know, is the personalities and the stuff people say to each other and what the opposing lawyer thinks about your client. Because if you're if the opposing attorney thinks your client is maybe a good person or might come across well as a witness testifying in front of the court, they may have a very different opinion about a settlement offer, or you know 
their position might be entirely different. They might say to their client, now we better not bring that motion. That guy's going to look really good on the stand. And, and so there's a lot of uh, tactical stuff there that is in this meta case. And it's how people behave towards each other, how they behave towards the children. What do they do talking to the guardian ad litem, right? You know, Exactly. Absolutely. And, 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 and going from that, I think going back to the cost, they're tying it all back in. He wanted to keep this very low profile. He's, he wanted to have an uncontested divorce, what we call it here in Illinois, where you go in with a full deal, it's all buttoned up, you submit the filing and you get the divorce. You're done. Right. You work out all the details behind the scenes. That's what yeah. he wanted to do here until she beat him to the courthouse, essentially the race yeah. of the courthouse. And now you have this, uh, storm or barrage of well now look and 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 that's a great point because like that ties into a lot of stuff here for um one thing i want to address one point before what i want to talk about in a minute is um that issue and wanting to keep good conditions for negotiation and and not screwing that up by launching those missiles you know because once you launch them you like pulling the bullet back in the gun right but talking pre about one other thing and, and that is um, with optics and, and all that, with respect to the settling a case, if you've dirtied the person up and you damage them publicly, and this is where Johnny Depp's thing is relevant, even though it's not a divorce, his damages were, hey, I lost these movie deals because you dirtied up my name. I lost these movie deals and you got to pay me. And he had proof of it. Now, a lot of times people have a hard time coming up with evidence, but what's the similarity for you and me and, and clients, let's say regular folks? We were just talking about a case today uh, with our other lawyers on our team where we think one of the spouses ran to the person's employer and t- essentially ratted them out to the employer and got them fired. You know, you talk to the HR department, talk about something they might be doing that's improper, what, you know, breaking some of the rules at the company, and the company fires them. Well, what happens then? They just cut their own throat. They they want child support. They want alimony. The guy just lost his job. So that's another thing to think about before you start pulling triggers. Be careful. You know, know what your target is, and because you could cause all kinds of collateral damage, namely yourself and your children. Exactly. And so, unless it in such things, unless it actually moves your case forward. It just might not be worth doing it. Yeah, right, absolutely right. And and this thing about settling, if you know, look at the rich and famous. Let's talk about Bill Gates. Let's talk about Bezos. Right? We didn't hear about those cases until they were all done, and then we got very little detail. And those guys aren't done. <laughs> exactly. They, or they, yeah. What were you going to say? To say or most or even more recently, Tom Brady. No one heard anything. Yep. Yep. The the smart people play it quiet and they get together, they get a mediator, whatever they, they do collaborative. They might negotiate. I'd read somewhere that I think the Bezos divorce took months or maybe a year or something. I'm sure there was a lot of stuff to untangle. I don't think there was a prenup. It was his first wife. And I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of work untangling his empire and the value of all this stuff. And it got done behind closed doors, I'm guessing efficiently. And it's all done. And 
you know, their reputations are largely intact and it was done quietly and out of the public eye and nothing's in the public record that's, you know, nothing interesting's in the public record that would damage either of them. And both of them are interested in their investments succeeding. I mean, she, half of what she got, I'm guessing, or a large portion of what she got is kind of tied to, to Mr. Bezos's success. You know, it's probably a lot of Amazon stock or whatever. So right. it's a lesson to all of us in, in cases big and small that, you know, be careful with going public, be careful with poisoning the well, because it, and also you might bite the hand that feeds you. You know, if you're on that other side and you're trying to get somebody to negotiate with you, well, the wrong thing to do is blast away because then all you're going to get is a war and you might not be able to strike that deal. You better be sure of the cards you're holding, I guess, is the thing, you know? Um, so I, I think that's just really interesting writ large, like comparing it to more typical cases that people have is these lessons apply, you know, across the board. So exactly. Um, and, and words matter and you might yeah. go in with a deal and the other person will say, well, I'm thinking back to the time you called me X, Y, and Z, or you said this about me. And so, no, I don't want to do this and let you off the hook essentially. So right. these things might have effect even months after they might've happened. It might not be yeah. an immediate sort of response. And, and Costner, we don't know. We're not inside there. We have no inside knowledge. This is just us reading public reports and giving our opinions, folks. But Costner may will, have been willing to cough up additional money and say, hey, here's uh, $1.9 to go away. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, people make a cost-benefit analysis all the time. And just because the prenup said 1.4 and you have to leave the house in 30 days, you know, he might have been in a good mood and said, take six months. I want to make this easy on the kids. And here's some extra money. So we both save legal fees and we don't have a hassle. Here you go. Well, now you've gone this route. You can't go back at that point. And she's jeopardized the chance she had for making a deal. And I'm sorry, but my money's on customers prenup, you know, winning the day when we're all done. Do I know that? Do I believe that she'll forfeit the fees and the, and forfeit the 1.4 million? I don't know. Will she be successful in busting the prenup? No, I'm willing to say that for sure. But uh, you know, the fee provision might be something that court thinks is within its discretion and can make a decision uh, about that. And the court might try to ameliorate things by reducing the fee award or making it zero, calling it a day. But you know, we'll see. Time will tell. But the indications already are, like we've said this prenup is going to stick in some fashion, probably largely it's going to work out. And so the only shot she's got is getting the max child support. She really can out of this situation. And um, yeah, so let's say, um, I mean, she's yeah. Sorry. Just to, just to put a button on that. I mean, if you do the math, I think there, she's getting about 1.5, 1.6 million in child support a year. So five years, that's, you know, six, seven, eight million dollars that she's, I guess, getting as an annuity, essentially, yeah. even though the prenup called for what, 1.4, 1.5. So there are ways around this, ultimately. It's it's three. Is it three children? I think it's three kids. It's three kids, yeah. one 16, I think, and then 
couple of younger ones, the youngest being, yeah. I think, 11 or 12. Yeah, and he has, I think he's got four kids from his previous marriage who are grown or, you know, older at this point. Right. Um, so, and, you know, he was reportedly making one and a half million per episode in Yellowstone. So, you know, the, the typical strategy for lawyers on, the, in this case, the wife's side of it, Christine's side of it, is to jump up and down and point all the money he's making. And the point is with a prenup, hey, that's irrelevant. You know, she signed the deal. And also in Costner's case, she can't even say she was clueless about the, this guy was already famous. He already had a bunch of hit movies under his belt and was already a multimillionaire. So it's hardly like the rags to riches thing. Like, wow, this guy had nothing. I didn't know I was signing this prenup. He didn't have anything. And now he's got money. The guy had tons of money when they got married. So she went into it with eyes wide open. Oh, absolutely. No, that's, that's interesting. That's the deal. So advice to folks negotiating prenups. Um, This is not legal advice, by the way, but our advice is, be careful what you do when you sign these prenups. You, they do stick and don't bank on challenging it later. And the other thing is uh, one other interesting story from our situation, our firm, what we had a case a while back where the soon to be wife wanted the husband to sign a prenup. And at the time she was making decent money. She made more money than the husband at the time. He was kind of just out of college bumping along. Her parents wanted the prenup because they thought he was a mope. You know, he was just getting started. He re- They thought he was kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well, you know, nice guy, nice smile and everything, but not a hard worker. Well, the guy ended up being phenomenally successful and worth millions of dollars. And the prenup walled off her assets and his assets and way of maintenance because they were thinking short term. They thought if this guy's a mope and he divorces her in three years, we don't want her to give him any maintenance or anything or five years or whatever. Well, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, this guy became a big success. And now she wants me, you know, she's upset that there's no maintenance provision. She's the one that wanted the maintenance waiver. So a couple of pieces of advice. Anything's possible when you're younger. You don't know what's going to happen. Be careful. These prenups can bite you in the rear end. Um, And if you've got assets, if you've got stuff to protect, absolutely get a prenup before you get married. I mean, we, we advise them for everybody. I mean, if you're just starting out with somebody, okay, maybe you just take your chances and you're okay with that. But and you've got nothing, okay, maybe that's okay to build it together. But prenups still do things like control who pays for legal fees. And there are many other aspects of prenups that you might find attractive that are part of the selling points of them, right? Exactly. And it's not just to screw one person out of the other, something else. You could have a prenup to essentially say, in the event we don't work out, we don't want a long protracted divorce, this is how we're going to divide everything we have. You can literally say in your prenup, we're going to split everything we have 50-50 and go our separate ways. No problem. So, I mean, it's just sort of setting rules and guidelines so that in the unfortunate event you do have to get divorced at some point, you don't have to worry about what is my spouse going to ask for. Yeah, and it's it's causing you – the other value of it is causing you to have the conversation. The, this is a discussion, not, not about the prenup itself, but a lot of the things people don't talk about when they're engaged is their value systems like money, kids – house, where are we going to live? And the prenup sort of drives those conversations. So it can have some value in terms of having each, you each have a deep dive into discussing what your values are, because you'll find out real fast when you talk about a prenup, what people think about the marriage, marriage long-term and their thoughts and dreams and all that stuff. And so it, it can be part of a larger conversation. And, and so one of the pieces of advice we always give is 
have this discussion early, which I think we touched on earlier, and people say, well, when's the ideal time? Well, as early as possible. So if you're, if you're getting engaged, do it then. Don't do it when you've got the venue picked out and everybody spent the money and the dresses purchased and all that. Too much pressure, way too hard and stressful. Weddings are already stressful enough. Absolutely. Couldn't say better. I mean, ultimately, prenups and wills, estate planning, very important. Two things people don't want to talk about because they're not just, they're just not fun topics to talk about. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about something different. We'll get off the prenup costume thing. I want to talk a little bit about one of the interesting developments lately is artificial intelligence, chat GPT. People are talking about it and we're interested in it. And um, let's talk about a little bit about AI and an application to the law, but also a little bit in general. So can you explain a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about what it is and then we'll both bounce around our ideas about what it means for the business, law business, and then I guess business in general. Absolutely. So ChatGPT is uh, sort of famous, has become famous overnight, essentially. A year ago, no one could have told you what AI was or how far along you would have had AI. Of course, I mean, it's it hasn't been developed overnight. People knew, people do know, but the sort of um, cultural phenomenon that has now become is, is definitely very interesting and has a lot of applications. It's a large language model that you can ask a computer to, for lack of a better word, give you an answer to something or perform a task or help provide advice or write or really anything you can think of, it can probably do or yeah. pretend to do. And that's the, that's the problem, the pretending. It might not know the answer, but it's very convincing. Yeah. And these, basically, if you think of, for folks that don't maybe know about what, how these really work, it seems like a magic black box you type stuff into and get answers. It's uh, basically, if you imagine stuffing a tremendous amount of information into, into a computer, basically gobbling up, think about all the encyclopedias, all the books, all the web pages. It's not all, but it's a large portion of web pages, uh, code from computer code websites, um, contracts from public databases. It, they've stuffed a tremendous amount of information from the internet into this model. And then they basically teach this, this piece of software is essentially instructed on how to weigh these things so that it can come up with answers. First, it can understand natural language questions, and it can answer those things with natural English language and, and other languages. And they actually, it's not just software, they use human trainers to help the software improve. So the, the secret sauce about AI is it's sort of the, uh, the 20 year overnight success. <laughs> it's taken a long time and a lot of money for these models to become viable to the point where they can be released in a public forum where they can actually do people good and not be so you know riddled with errors and mistakes that they're garbage so you know you've got uh claude ai is one of the models out there there's chat gpt there's a bunch of there's a few out there and some open source ones and uh we've been using it in our business to help us with different things and not doing legal work though and uh let's talk a little bit about the limitations for legal because famously there's a big blow up lately where uh a lawyer used ChatGPT to do his homework. So basically, the um, with, what happened was a, a lawyer in a federal court case, looks like the lawyer needed case research to 
essentially they, they were doing some case research for one of their briefs to take one of their legal positions and they used ChatGPT to generate case research, thinking it was kind of like Google. You know, when you search Google, Google will bring up actual cases. They might not be the best cases. They not, might not be perfectly right, but Google more, more times, more often than not, will come up with actual case law that you can then search more further, search further on a legal research database or on a state court database to make sure it's correct. And more likely than not, Google's pulling up an actual web page published by a court or by another service provider, and it's giving you the actual cases. Now, the answers might not be perfect and everything, but you'll get a real case with a real case name and a citation. I think this person thought that ChatGPT worked like that, but GPT famously does what's called hallucinations. And what it does is, if you imagine the one good way to think of a, of a large language model is it's like a Cuisinart with data. So people shove in all the, think about books and web pages and everything into a chopper. <clears throat> it chops all that stuff up and it sort of learns about the relationships between that information. And it works sort of like when you have predictive text, when you're writing a text or an email in Gmail, for example, it'll guess the next few words. A large language model just is doing that on a grand scale. And so what's happening is it has gobbled up all these cases and put them in the mix master. And what this lawyer didn't know was that all this stuff went in the Cuisinart. So when they typed in, oh, you know, I want to know a case about an airline passenger, blah, blah, blah. Well, GPT just created Cuisinart answer. And it was like all chopped up. It's like hamburger. So it had what looked like a real case name. It had a case number and it had a decision which looked pretty legit. When you read the decision, it looked like a pretty legit summary of a case and it looked really good. But what was the only problem? The only problem <laughs> is it didn't exist and very convincing. And yeah. it's, it's surprisingly convincing. I personally have tried this and uh, have asked for a case that I, or a citation I know doesn't exist. It will tell me the citation and say, this is what this case says. I'll say, well, are you sure? I don't think this case exists. And then what does it do? It apologizes to you. It says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. You're right, that case does not exist. Yeah, and, it's, and so people don't realize, this lawyer didn't realize that the large language model is really what they call a general model. It, it has, I, there are multiple aspects to the model we're learning now that when you write a certain task, it's farming out tasks to different sub-models. If you imagine like multiple computers, it's really not like this, but if you're writing, if you're doing a mathematics task, it's going in one direction. If you're doing an English language thing, it's going somewhere else. But this thing is basically trained on general intelligence and sort of general knowledge. So it's really good. For example, I've used it a lot for marketing and as an idea generator. So if I ask it, for example, to come up with 10 topics for blog posts for divorce lawyers, it comes up with 10 pretty good ideas. Um, and if I ask it for more, it'll come up with five more pretty good ones. And so I, I love using it as an idea generator because it's really, it's, it's gobbled up all that stuff in the Cuisinart. So it's really good at spitting back out those things. And some of it's really good, but you have to use your head and know what you're looking at and filter the good from the bad, you know, like you're saying, and this lawyer unfortunately didn't have a clue. And they took those cases as gospel and gave them to the court. And the other lawyer called them out on it. And they got in big trouble. And it went, it was all over the media, in the New York Times and all over Twitter and social media. And 
big mistake, really damaging the credibility of that lawyer for not checking that out. Well, what he did was, unfortunately, if he had stopped there, he might have just got a slap on the wrist. Yep. What he did was the judge gave him a way out. The judge said, are you sure these exist? Write me an affidavit saying they're actual cases that oh, you're citing. Right. And what did this guy do? He wrote the <laughs> affidavit. He should have checked. <laughs> said, you know what? Follow my sword. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I'm yeah. not caught up with technology. Nope. He doubled down said, no, these are absolute real cases. That was unbelievable. I mean, that's when, you know, you're in federal court, federal, I mean, judges don't screw around, number one. In federal court, they really don't screw around. And when you, when opposing counsel calls you out and you've got to write an affidavit about your research, you better damn well check your, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's. And if you made a mistake, you've got to front it because that guy was humiliated basically in public. That was broadcast all over the place. That, that, I think that court does live broadcasts. And I, I heard that thing on I, the guy talking was online live. Super embarrassing and probably super damaging to that guy's business. And it's like, you know, so it's a, it's a caution, word of caution to lawyers. Be careful with these models. They're not ready for prime time. They're good for some stuff. They're really good for drafting, like giving you a rough draft of a blog post when you, when you crank. Also, it's a garbage in, garbage out. If you put some good quality prompts in, then ChatGPT can hang its hat on the things you tell it to do, and it gives you much better quality answers. Um, the more specific you are, the better it is at retrieving stuff out of the, you know, out of the pile of information that's in there. Um, so there's so much potential for legal and, you know, we're going to see, we're already seeing AI tools, you know, baked into different aspects of legal software and you know, Lexus Westlaw, these legal research platforms are baking AI in, and we're starting to see, you know, an app we work with doc equity, which is awesome. They're, they're incorporating, uh, AI and we're excited about that. We're working with those guys. That tool's got a potential to save us tremendous work generating documents for divorce clients. So. Um, they're already using it in the personal injury space, which is cool to see. So we're only going to see a proliferation of these tools and they will get better. What they're basically going to do is create custom models for legal that will know the legal rules so they won't spit out garbage. They'll spit out correct case law. Exactly. Instead, you know. And we hope that the courts sort of evolve with these trends because right yeah. now what, you know, with the uh, sort of uh, result of this, uh, this attorney's, sort of um, ridicule is that courts now want us to submit oftentimes affidavits saying we did not use chat GPT or any large language model when preparing and submitting briefs <laughs> for that which, very specific reason. Which is ridiculous because it conflicts with rule 11 in federal court and rule 137 in Illinois basically says you're already vouching for the quality of the content as a lawyer. When you okay. sign off, you're saying it's good faith law or you're advancing a good faith position to modify existing law, right? So it's um, it's perfectly acceptable. We're already covering those bases by signing a pleading as it is. It's such a classic knee-jerk reaction by a judge saying, oh, I want you to also sign a piece of paper that says GPT didn't do my homework. Well, it's it, to my in my opinion, it's no different than having a law clerk write the pleading for you or a paralegal or a junior associate and you're signing it, well, you better review it and make sure it's right, right? Right. What does it matter who wrote it? It's my, yeah, it's it's my work, ultimately, right. uh, is what I, I, we'll, I think we'll see that drop away. But yeah, I, I saw that I saw that online. I thought that was funny of these judges with the 
you know, you need to sign a document saying it wasn't drafted with chat GPT, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's ridiculous. Like we're, the, the tech is going to provide a quantum leap in efficiency for lawyers and save clients a lot of money ultimately and provide a better product. So, you know, ultimately it's going to benefit clients, you know, in the long run and accelerate administration of justice because it'll make all this stuff faster. That's it for the pod. I'm Rafe Palmer and this is Rahul Iyer. Like, share, subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever great podcasts are hosted. Remember to check out my book on Amazon.com. I just want this done. How smart, successful people get divorced without losing your kids' money and minds. It's best-selling on Amazon. Rated one of the best divorce books of all time by Book Authority. And follow me at Rayford Palmer on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And Rahul, tell us about your uh, social media. Absolutely. Feel free to uh, follow me at Chicago Divorce and uh, both on Instagram and TikTok. Thank you, Rayford Palmer, Rahul Iyer. Thanks a lot for listening.